0: where we broadcast our pirate signal and back into the Matrix. EscapingTheCave.com, also on the ChristopherMedia.net network. Thank you, Kaha com- com- comrades Lock, I got him. Now. Howdy, Toddzilla Files. Welcome to another episode of Escaping the Cave, the Toddzilla X pod ChristopherMedia.net network. You can also get me at escapingthecave.com, fuck Twitter. Hope you're having a great week so far. It's Wednesday, September the 25th, as I record. Late Wednesday. Been a hell of a day today. Yeah, oh, boy. Are you ready for the impeachment charade? The impeachment shit show. <laughs> at least the hearings, right? I got a lot more on this coming up later on today, but boy. Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. podcast is going to start shifting it's going to start transi- tran- transitioning just a little bit gonna move uh, back toward social media disease material and also back toward uh, propaganda Jacques Ellul and a few other things I'm going to introduce a couple new characters to the production to the stage show other than me and Mr. Alul. today you're going to be introduced at least preliminarily introduced to the legend that is, Walter Lippmann. Going to be hearing a little bit more, I think, about Edward Bernays and coming days, coming weeks ahead too. As well as getting back into the Chaka Chaka material as well. I want to explain what's going on here a little bit. I needed a bit of a break here in September. I took a couple of weeks off. <laughs> I was putting out podcasts at a record pace, at least for me. I do these shows all by myself. I don't have like writers. It's much easier to do. A podcast with other people. It's really nice to have Chris and Rich sit in with me because we can just sort of chat before the show, right? Get a get a very basic idea of where the show's going to go. And we can sit down and we can just shoot the shit for three hours. And I've got three podcasts an hour long that I can throw up for a week. It's some of the easiest stuff, comparatively speaking, that you can do podcasts. why most podcasters, hardly any of them, do a, a solo show like this. Very, very few. And it's because it's difficult you're the only one here you got to know where you're going you can't rely on your co-hosts i I don't know carry the show carry the water change topics add something that you can bounce off of it's a monologue rather than a conversation most podcasts rely on guests or more than one host and it's a lot more difficult to do it this way (laughs) you have to have a pretty good idea if at least a decent idea of where you're going to go, how you want to approach each and every show. I don't sit here and write everything. I write some of my stuff so I don't get uh, lost in the weeds, as I tend to do. But you don't—you have to have an idea. You have to have a pretty good notion, at least an outline of where you're going. Right? And with the material that I've been doing, it takes a lot of work to get that stuff out of the book. What's applicable, or what I think is applicable anyway, in my, in my view, and give yourself enough material to riff on it at the same time. So that means you got to take it and I have a hard copy of the book. Most Kindle books only allow you to highlight and export ten percent of the entire book. I use, I tend to export more than that when I read off of Kindle. When I when I'm reading on a Kindle or when I'm highlighting a, a physical hard copy of a book, I, I highlight a hell of a lot more than ten percent of it. You should see uh, my copy. Uh, my Kindle copy of The Shallows. I got maybe half the book exported before it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I hit my my little limit. So anyway, it's a lot of stuff. It takes a lot of organization. I put a lot more time in actually preparing the podcasts than I do voicing them and then producing them. And so it's kind of turned into, I wouldn't call it a full-time job. I wouldn't. I'm not going to be that pretentious, but it's it's at least a really good part time job if I'm doing them on a regular basis, and it's stressful because I'm sort of existing in a vacuum here. It's my own doing. I am, you know, I'm basically like I said. Fuck Twitter. I'm not on Twitter. I'm not soliciting comments. I'm not join the conversation. <laughs> I'm not doing any of that shit. I don't want to hear from most of you. I'm sorry. I don't. I've been over this before. So you, I I, I treasure greatly our interactions. You know who you are. Most people, most wildlife out there in social media. I don't want to engage it. I don't want. I, I am cynical enough. I'm going to get into this a little bit today. I don't want to be jacket around with partisans. I don't want to be jacket around with doctrine, dogma, and stuff that they somebody's heard on MSNBC or on Fox News. And I don't want to be swatting that shit down. You get sucked in. You get sucked into these battles. Online, and then you realize that these people, especially after doing this material, you understand that these folks are not thinking. These aren't their own thoughts. You can predict them. You have experienced this. I know you have. I know you've experienced this. A lot of you have. Or you know what's coming. Why in the world would I encourage that? I can't do it. It's just, again, I'm cynical enough. I'm angry enough. (laughs) I don't know if you noticed from that last podcast. (laughs) Some things really piss me off. I'm frustrated. So, no, in order to at least make an attempt at congeniality, (laughs) my best trait, I just stay away from it. I don't encourage it. So, not doing that, I'm sort of in a bubble. I'm in isolation. A little bit. I like that. I don't. I don't even go listen to other podcasts. I have one other one that I'll be mentioning in the next uh, episode or two that I have found that I like a lot. But most other podcasts, I don't bother with it. I don't go listening to other people because I've sort of taken the George Carlin approach to this. Then I don't listen to other people's material. I may or may not have mentioned that on the show before. Apologies if I have, but I don't do that. So everything that I'm doing, I'm, I'm relying on my own observations. I don't want the inside of my mind's wall spray-painted by too many other people. I don't want my thoughts, <sighs> I don't want to say influenced because you do, you do obviously learn things from other people, but I don't want them hijacked. I want to know what I think. I want to come up with my, at least as best I can, my own take on things. We have enough people. Recycling somebody else's point of view and perspective. Too many people do that. I preach about it all the time. I'm going to preach about it probably again today. I shouldn't be doing that. So I don't go listen to other podcasts. I have to be honest with you, most of them are crap. The one that I like, the one that I'm actually going to advocate for and I'm going to try to direct you to, I don't like listening to it because it sounds like flies fucking. It's boring as hell. It's like going into Whole Foods and there's a couple of flies on the The organic kale shelf humping. That's what I think about when I listen to these guys. It's a good, informative podcast. I just don't like listening to it. I feel like I should go drive a Subaru. It's a shitty thing to say. I know. I'm a judgmental shit. I'm a broadcast professional, or at least I was once upon a time, believe it or not. So I listen to these types of things. I don't like listening to you. Oh, my God. But that's good information. Thank you. (laughs) I am a judgmental prick sometimes. I admit that. But now, so it 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 puts me into an echo chamber of one, if that makes any sense. And you know, you start questioning things. If you're not part of a crowd, you're not part of a mob. And I've covered this. This is something that Alul covered in his book. If you're not part of a group, if you're not part of an organization or a mob or a you know a group mind, a tribe, and you're standing there solo you question yourself because you're seeing things, you're come up, coming up with material that very few other people are able to comprehend or understand for one thing. It's not, it's not apple or orange. It's something else. So you take it out of that context, and you take it out of the acceptable binary uh, system that we're in. This good, that bad, that kind of thing. And you present something different. People don't know what to do with it. And you stand there like, uh, am I crazy? For a minute. And then you go turn the news on. And you realize, no, now I'm not crazy. <laughs> no, it's hard. I I, I tell you, I, I talk about this stuff before. I've talked about the uh, psychological effects of propaganda. It's a good series on that back there in August. Really worth listening to if you if you've missed it. Uh, but there's a psychological effect that happens that takes place when you separate yourself from it. And I, you know, I'm not completely separated. The digital detox is going pretty well. Twitter, basically non-existent now. Very little happening on Facebook. Very, very little. Uh, It's going pretty well. It's slow. But there is something that happens when you withdraw from that, especially if you're used to being part of a group and used to having your, quote-unquote, thoughts, if that's what they are, reinforced by the group, supported by the group. right? And when you don't have that anymore, and you've been used to it for a really long time, you have this tendency to feel really unsure of yourself. He talks about this. This applies beyond. I, you know, I think this is part of the uh, problem we're going to have with social media. I sort of tiptoed around this in one of the episodes talking about dopamine addiction and dopamine withdrawal and when, when and if Facebook and Twitter decide to get rid of their like system, how people are going to feel. That, when they've had that social validation, that dopamine hit delivered through these platforms for so long on such a regular basis, if Facebook starts taking those things away, people are going to feel it, and they won't know what it is. If they're not aware of it, if they're not aware of the dopamine hit, the intentional dopamine addiction that's been manufactured into these products if they're not even aware that it exists, if they just know they like it, and suddenly they're not getting it anymore and they don't put two and two together, things happen. I encourage you to go back and listen to that, those episodes back. In fact, I may have gotten into that one this month. It may have been in the uh, Iceberg Ahoy episode. But uh, I've experienced a little bit of that. Just a little bit. And I've uh, found myself, as time goes on, As I try to sort of extract myself and withdraw myself, slowly withdraw myself away from something that I've been dependent upon for 10 years, for both uh, my creative expression, sadly, and social interaction, as I slowly have been withdrawing from that, I've noticed little twinges of exactly that. It's like, uh, I feel like I'm standing on an island now uh, by myself. Where is that? Oh, boy. And then, yeah, reading this material, it makes perfect sense. It doesn't make it any easier to understand it. I'm going to tell you that right now. I'm getting the impression, and they haven't told me this. There are a few people in my life that I'm getting the impression they're feeling the same thing. And I did an episode back uh, probably July called the Cognitive Twitch or the, yeah, the, uh, what was it? The Convulsive Twitch, where I talked about how going to Facebook, like taking my material, my opinions or my thoughts, my observations, whatever it was that moment and that day. And it turned into a sort of a convulsive, what I call a convulsive twitch, an association where I had to, when I had these things, I felt these things, had these thoughts, had these ideas, these opinions. I had this urge to hop on my phone or my laptop and shit it into Facebook and then wait for somebody to comment on it or like it or share it or whatever. You know what I'm talking about. And I was talking to Rich last week and I've come up with this um, theory. Because of the association made over the course of many years now, a decade, getting rid of that. I still have this. I still do it. Now, I've, I've found a way around it. I'll write my shit, and I'll post it. And then I just make it, I set the privacy privacy settings to only me. I'll leave it up for maybe an hour. Maybe a little longer every now and then. But no, normally, I'll come back and be like, no, I, no, get rid of this. I won't delete it. Uh, but I'll just set the settings so I am the only one in the world who can see it. So it's almost like a snap post, in a way. And I found most of my material, I was wanting to write on social media and put it out there. That's kind of where my creative um, habit has gone. So I'm trying to figure out a way to move away from that and put it right here, right? And I, I figured out that there's a connection here between getting off of Facebook, moving away from Facebook, moving to another slower medium. This is a very specific medium. You have to click on my face in order to hear this. And I don't have it set up so a lot of people can give me feedback on it. Hardly anybody can. Good luck. Uh, if you can find the Twitter account, you can post something. I probably won't read it. <laughs> or I might read it and just roll my eyes, or I just may, um, I, good chance I'm going to ignore it. And very And Nobody outside of my very, very tiny circle of friends can uh, post anything on Facebook. I've got a YouTube channel set up. It's just basically a net to catch random YouTubers to, to get them to the podcast, to the actual download site. I don't really do anything with it, but I've set those settings to where I have to moderate the comments. So I don't have the drive-by wildlife shitting in my yard. I've noticed getting rid of that convulsive twitch reminds me of what it's like to quit smoking. When you get rid of cigarettes, I quit smoking many times. (laughs) Uh, I smoke again. But when I did quit, the hardest part of it after a few days, you have this uh, few days of the chemical withdrawal, right? The chemical addiction is real. Nicotine's a hard one to kick. But the real problem, the real hard part, the challenging part is it lasts about four to six months. It's the psychological connection, the mental connection, the convulsive. Twitch, every morning you get up and you associate cigarettes with morning. I'm out of bed. I must smoke now. And you get done eating. You're, you want a cigarette. You got in the car, you got to smoke. After you get laid, you got to have a cigarette, right? And that's the hard part of it. Breaking that association with all of these things in your life that you've attached or associated with smoking with the dopamine Hit you get from nicotine—that's the addiction. That's why Chantix works. It blocks those uh, receptors in your brain, so nicotine cannot trigger the dopamine release. That's why Chantix works. And it's terrible, really. Has these other side effects to it, but that's how I quit back in 2009. But it does work because you smoke and smoke and smoke and smoke and smoke, and they tell you to for that first uh, for maybe a week, and there's nothing getting to your brain. You're still going through the withdrawals. Like, there's no dopamine there. The act of smoking does nothing, and it's terrible. Oh, but it works. You have to go through that. And that's part of the process of breaking those associations. You're not getting the dopamine hit from taking your cigarette out on the deck when you wake up first thing in the morning. And even when you're done, now you're done smoking, say you've been done for a month, you still get these urges. You still get these, like, they come out of nowhere. And at first, they're every 10 minutes. I need a cigarette. I want a cigarette. I want a cigarette. Then all of a sudden, they're every half hour. And then after a little while longer, they're once an hour, once every six hours, once a day. And then you start getting them once every, I don't know, three days, maybe once a week. And eventually you get to a point where you just laugh at it. You know what it is at this point. <laughs> there's, an, there's an urge. Isn't that cute? And by that time... Unless you're an idiot who's gone through all this work for nothing by that point. When you're only dealing with it maybe every few hours or something like that, you can kind of chuckle. If you start smoking after that point, it's your fault. Because you want to smoke. The addiction is manageable at that point. I'm associating this and I'm tying this into social media because it is a dopamine delivery system. The platform itself is designed around social validation. The dopamine hit of social validation This podcast that I'm talking about, it's called Your Undivided Attention. If you go listen to the From Russia With Likes episodes, they will talk about how Mark Zuckerberg, early on, it might have been, it was either at the very beginning of Facebook or before Facebook was even conceived, had told someone, Or had mentioned, I I don't know, you'd have to go listen to it to get the specifics of it. But he knew that the person who owned social validation, who could deliver social validation the best, would rule. He'd be extremely successful because social validation is a primary human need that every single one of us has. Twitter and Facebook deal in this drug. Facebook and Twitter, deal in the dopamine drug. I think it's the same thing. The same thing that I experienced when I quit smoking and I was getting these urges, getting these urges, these convulsive twitches, the same thing's happening to me now with social media. I have this urge. I've associated my creative process, which was once writing a blog and doing radio, doing show prep. I have associated that, that outlet, with Facebook. And so now, whenever I have an idea, ever I see something, take something out of a book, I I, I've got a piece that I'm going to probably get to tomorrow that was triggered exactly this way the other night. I was sitting in my bed trying to go to sleep, and I figured, oh, what the hell, you know, I'll read this Walter Lippman book. I'll just start it. See, I'll read a few pages of it. I know a little bit about the guy. Let's see what the intro is. And then two hours later. I didn't get tired. My brain just blew up, set itself on fire. And two hours later, I'm in here writing something into Facebook. It was just a confirmation of what I already knew, I guess. And I posted and I threw it up there. I did. And left it there, let it sit there overnight, came back the next morning and slammed the lockdown, the privacy settings, took it out of there, put it into my Word editor, and now I have a piece that I'm going to use tomorrow on Walter Lippmann. That is it. That is the it's an association with something. I uh, that, that's mine. Okay? I don't know what yours is. I don't know what theirs is, but there is something associated with dopamine and these platforms and social validation, getting your shit out. I don't know what it is. Significance maybe. Showing off for your friends maybe. I don't know. But it reminds me. It's almost identical. The urge as it was uh, when I was trying to get rid of cigarettes, the associations. So, there's going to be more on this. Uh, I wish I could do more than one podcast at a time. I just can't. The the material is too complex. But there's a lot of this, and there's going to be more of this coming in this podcast series. Once I get through the propaganda aspect of this, because the propaganda aspect ties into so many things that I just talked about. The dopamine hit, the, the social validation, being part of a group, I've already talked about most of this. Go back and listen to it. But there's another aspect to the social media addiction and internet addiction in general that is physical beyond uh, dopamine. That's the Nicholas Carr. If you want to get to it yourself, if you're really interested in that, uh, Nicholas Carr and the Shallows is the name of the book. I've mentioned it a dozen times, probably more on here. It's worth picking up. You can get it on Amazon. Uh, It was a really... uh, uh, He sold a lot of books back when this thing came out, I think, right around 2011. It's not new, but it's still, the information in there is pertinent. Still. And I'm going to get to that. That's going to be one of my uh, series of podcasts eventually as I move back to the social media disease and uh, the Matrix, eventually. Speaking of the Matrix, I've changed the open. I'm getting really sick. A guy's name, Todd, is gone. And I figured out uh, this month. A little longer, maybe. But uh, really, I I think I've sort of committed to it this month. I've started to see the Internet, social media maybe in particular, as the Matrix. The movie The Matrix. I used to think (laughs) back in my naive days that The Matrix was a metaphor for society. Now, this kid, this movie came out in 1999, before the Internet was what the Internet is. I fell in love with it probably right around 2003, 2004, and I was like, yes, this is a metaphor for society. It's all fake. Everything is a facade to keep you enslaved in, in, in careerism and all this other stuff. And maybe that was accurate. Maybe it wasn't, I don't know, but that's what I used to think. That's why I... I and plus, 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 The Matrix is a uh, direct take on uh, Plato's cave and the life of Socrates. Would you want to know if everything that uh, you were led to believe is real was fake? Would you want to know? Would you want to be taken from the cave and shown the upper world? Most people will say, yeah. It's not that simple. And Plato came to the conclusion back in the day, which is not in this movie, by the way, Actually, it is, (laughs) with Cypher, that the guy is going to leave the cave. He's going to go to the upper world. He's going to wander around. He's going to see all these great things. He's going to see reality as it is, or at least as best he can see it, outside of what he was raised to believe was real. He's going to take all. He's going to have these experiences. He's going to be excited. He's seen something new that he wants to share with people. He's got a choice to make. He can stay up there in the upper world of the real, I guess, or he can return to the cave back to a life of illusion, delusion, deception. There's a choice there. And Plato says that the ethical man, the noble man, will return because he has a responsibility to tell the people in the cave what he's seen. There's a problem though. Because the people in the cave, most of them won't believe it. They'll think he's crazy. They'll think he's insane. They'll think that he has lost his fucking mind. And If he persists and he's shown not to be nuts, they might kill him. They might kill him for destroying their illusions. This is Cypher in the movie. It's a complicated thing. The ego wants to think that, yes, I would be glad, I would gladly run around, I would gladly unchain myself from these shadows dancing upon the wall projected by the the handlers of the cave behind me. I'd gladly unhook myself and run to the top, and I'd go, Oh, my eyes. Oh, I can't say, Oh, God. why do my eyes hurt? You've never used them. That kind of thing. <laughs> and I would love to see the world as it is. It's not true. For a lot of people, that is not true. For a lot of people, that's terrifying. But the one thing that I I think that I've always been intrigued with was this notion that there is a choice to come back. You don't have to. Or in Plato's view, if you're a hero or a nobleman, you have to go back and you have to share this. You have to help other people with what you found. But what really strikes me, what really strikes me, and I love this, I wholeheartedly agree with his take on it, is that, yeah, if you're not careful with destroying people's delusions... They will turn on you, and if you're not careful, they'll kill you. That's how close and dear people hold their internal narratives. And it's understandable. Don't, you know, it's it's really easy to stand, oh, blah, 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 you loser. It's really easy to do that, but it's tethered to so many different things. It's tethered to identity. It's an imagined order. That's what religion is. You start fucking with that. You're fucking with more than just religion and ideology. You're fucking with people's sense of identity, who they are, and the entire narrative constructed in their mind. Yes, it's the Matrix. Yes, it's shadows dancing on the wall and you're calling them a buffalo. Yes, it is a deception. But the problem is is that it's attached to people's egos, their identities, They've constructed their entire pseudo-environment. That's not my phrase. You're going to be hearing that again. They construct their entire internal pseudo-environment around that so they can function. So they have at least an imagination or an illusion of an understanding of the world and, more importantly, their place in it, and perhaps their place at the center of it. You start messing with that, you're messing with primal human forces. You had better know that going in. And people wonder why it is that people just don't leave their ideologies or their religions. Because you have come and shown them the way. It doesn't take superhuman degrees of empathy to understand why. If you can get off, and I'm having a problem with this every now and then myself, but you have to get off that, uh, that, that self-righteous stump and try to understand people. Try to be empathetic. I've talked about this really narrow path to empathy a few times. I have not been able to blaze it myself. I haven't. I admit that. And I know this is a defect I have. <laughs> I'm trying really hard to get there. But every day, it's like there's something else. There's something else. It's like, oh my God, these fucking people. (sighs) I don't prop that up as a virtue. It just happens. It is. As Lenny Bruce liked to say, the truth is what is. What should be is a fantasy. A terrible, terrible lie someone gave the people long ago. Should I have this path to empathy by now? Of course, I probably (coughs) should. I don't. I'm trying. I am. I am. I do understand it. I do. It, 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 <clears throat> I've experienced this before. I've experienced losing my religion, losing my place at the center of the universe. I know what that does to uh, your psychology, your sense of self, your identity, all of it. The enemy that sets in the hopelessness. What the fuck's it all for? I understand that because I have experienced it. So this should be easier for me to get to. <laughs> you know, it, it just it hasn't been. And this is something I think that uh, most people have no concept of. I don't think they know themselves well enough or they have not allowed themselves to know themselves well enough to understand the psychological forces at play that we all Share to some degree. We do. This is how Facebook and Twitter are able to manipulate you and us. Us. I was, I'm was. i right there with you. I'm not going <laughs> to point a finger here. They've done it to me. They're still doing it to me to some degree. The social validation aspect of this, the praise. And this is the thing. I've got another piece here. I've been holding off on doing it. I don't want to rant too much today. I did enough of that in the last episode. But this is the thing where people are starting to attack the very idea of human nature. Psychological traits where we are all not identical, but we have the same basic psychology because of how we've evolved. People are starting to attack that. They like to call themselves, or somebody likes to call them blank slatists. I've talked about them before. I've got much much, much more on this. And not only is that attacking human nature, it's, it's, if you can convince people that there is no human nature, that everybody is a blank slate, you are free to try to write whatever you want on that slate. And you have given yourself, or if you adhere to this notion, to this philosophy, you are giving these people permission to engage in psychological eugenics, creating the right man, which is very, very Mauian. The socialist man, where he had the right kind of person that had to be created. The socialist man, that they had to be gotten to as children, so they could create the proper socialist man. I'd like you to go back and listen. If you have the stomach, (laughs) go back and listen to that last episode. I think that's part, just part of what set me off about that post about stand up comedy. They are trying to create, manufacture, engage in artistic eugenics, the right kind of artist, as of course defined by them. That's all I have to say about that for right now. I will have much, much more on that though. And I don't think that people have a concept just of how, I don't want to say alike. It just doesn't feel right in this context. No, We're all the same. We're not all the same, obviously, but we have certain traits that are common. All cats meow (laughs) unless something's wrong with them. We have historical baggage in our DNA that have made us a certain way. And I hope I'm wrong about this, but I've said numerous times that I think that the next spurt of human evolution has nothing to do with physicality. We haven't changed much in hundreds of thousands of years physically. Even our brains haven't changed all that much, thousands of years. The next spurt of evolution that I think is coming, and I think it's going to be triggered and brought on probably before we're ready for it by this technology, is an evolution of self-awareness not changing and creating the right kind of man but an evolution where we are aware of what's going on inside of our minds and working within it understanding and comprehending ourselves therefore comprehending them once you get to the point where you understand yourself and believe me I just said I know exactly how hard this is but you can you can then apply that once you feel the the trial and the turmoils and the challenges of these sorts of things, because and, and begin to even start to comprehend them, then you can look at the other guy. Then you can empathize with what they're going through. And once they understand, then they can look at the guy over there and start to comprehend what they're going through. And then instead of getting at each other's throats, arguing over petty bullshit, but once you get to that point, then maybe you can start bonding on what we have in common, even if it is, even if it is very, very human imperfections. You know, that's the one of the great things about 12-step programs. There aren't a lot, but that's one of the good ones, is that you can sit down in a group with other people who share the same problems you do. Call it a defect if you want, but it's a way to bond with other people. Talk about these similarities. Understand each other and thereby understand yourself and improve. Evolve. That's the path. If there is any path, I don't think there is. I, I don't think that there is. But that is going to be the path to Star Trek and Utopia. And I've talked about the tragic and utopian vision that I uh, read about in um, Stephen Pinker's book, Blank Slate talked about it have more on it coming that is the path that's the only path to it you're not going to get there by grabbing people by the back of the head and beating their head into a wall until they see things your way you're just not people have to come along at their own pace i don't have the quote sitting right in here in front of me but i'll paraphrase it somebody wrote that there's no worse kind of tyrant than the tyrant who thinks they're doing it for your own good because at least the evil guy The bastard will take a break every now and then. Whereas the guy who's doing it for your own good, the self-righteous tyrant, is always energized by his sense of godly self-righteousness. Anyway, this has gone on a lot longer than I intended. But one of those things I think that we can all, if not come together on, at least have a sense of commonality with, right, is... The material that I've been talking about with uh, propaganda and some of the material that I've been talking about, about data overload and some of the stuff that I'm going to begin to talk about as far as the need for propaganda, mythology and religion. These things are all related. The need for propaganda is, is heavily tied to the need for religion. One of the greatest things, one of the best things in the world, is finding out that you, what you thought was an original idea, has been thought of before, and then you can read other people's thoughts on it. I love it when that happens. I came up with it; they came up with it. Now I can read what they had to say about it. And probably one of the best examples of this that I can think of in my own life is the comparison between ideology and uh, religion. It serves the same purpose explanation of a confusing world with you, you as the chosen one, who's here to save it. You're on the side of God. That's why I keep saying God on your side. And I think if you uh, listen to the stuff that I'm going to talk about a little bit, uh, maybe today, but definitely when I move back into the need for propaganda in the Jacques Ellul book, Propaganda, if you sort of listen to it through that filter, that filter of religion and how it's similar to religion, I think you're going to be able to understand this. And I think, and I don't want to hear about it, I don't want you to tell me about it, but I hope to God that some of you ideologues out there can sit there quietly reflecting on how your ideology is filling the same void as religion, especially, especially if you're an atheist. It should be a lot of fun. Don't tell me about it. I don't want to hear about it. Don't tell anybody else about it. All right? This is yours. You don't have to admit it to anybody. You don't owe that to anybody. But pay attention to that. And then that may be the path forward. Where well, we start to kind of understand these things a little bit better. But it starts with Noski some Tey Noski. Temet Noski. Know thyself. Three listening to the Escaping the Cave podcast at ChristopherMedia.net. You can get my website at uh, EscapingTheCave.com. I am Todd, and Kumbaya time is ending. Sort of. <laughs> I can't freak you out here, can I? I'm going to tie things back into the last episode. If you haven't listened to that, it was a rant fest about uh, stand-up comedy. People laying out the parameters of stand up comedy. What's acceptable? Stand up comedy. The proper stand up man. The proper socialist comedian. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm presuming to lay out the parameters in, in form of a checklist, if you will. I didn't. They did. No, you didn't. Anyway, this does tie into um, where I'm going a little bit. And I mentioned the Dixie Chicks. And uh, Dave Chappelle, in the last episode, the episode before that, and probably the one before that, there are a lot more of these uh, entertainers who have uh, sort of, I don't know, run counter to ideology, political religion of some sort, and have been hit with a threat to be canceled. Another one is uh, Kid Rock. Ted Nugent's a great one. He's decided to come out in support of the Second Amendment. Has for years and years and years and years and years, and a lot of people just absolutely despise him. I have a very good friend who's in this category. Anything Ted Nugent does, says, he could take a shit. And he would find something wrong with the way Mr. Nugent squatted upon the throne because he hates Ted Nugent and what he stands for politically and ideologically. I understand that. There are a lot more. Roseanne Barr. People hated her because she was a Trump supporter. A little off base. She was, she was out there. A lot of other reasons people hated her. Jane Fonda. <laughs> ask, ask a conservative about Jane Fonda. Ask a conservative. Ask your nearest conservative friend. Yeah, if he wants to go see it, it's Jane Fonda flick. Maybe Barbarella. <laughs> That'll be fun. I think Rage Against Machine could probably put them in that category as well. I, I, I'm suffering from that. They used to be my favorite band back when I was a lefty. And uh, after my political enlightenment, when I braced being an infidel. Now I listen to Tom Morello talk. I don't want to listen to his music as much. It has nothing to do with the art. It has nothing to do with his musical ability. It's the same. Killing in the name sounds just the same as it did 10 years ago, but I don't listen to it. I don't uh, go out of my way to listen to Rage Against the Machine's material now because Tom Morello has decided to, not just decided, actually that music was political. But now I see the music and the art differently because of how I perceive the artist. In country music... an entire genre that suffers from that right at least in part because it supports this uh, american myth the american mythology that i'm talked about define that how you want but country music musicians country artists are typically very very fond and proud of their american heritage and what it means to be an american you see flags all over the love it or leave it man and so therefore I can't think of very many liberals that I know personally. I don't know if I can think of any who are country music fans or even like country music. Maybe the old stuff. But no, new stuff? Toby Keith <laughs> it has nothing to do with again with the music of talent of the individual artist or whether the music is quote unquote good. It's the narrative. The narrative that's unacceptable. Therefore, to the vast majority of liberals, country music musicians, they just suck. That's it. Yeah, country music sucks. It's all about how your truck broke down and your dog died. Heard that a lot. I said that a lot. I thought the same thing. I'm not speaking out of school here. I'm not being judgmental. (laughs) It's a self-evaluation as much as anything. And I do remember the conversations we used to have, my former liberal friends. Unless you were lying to me, I think I'm drawing this from a pretty uh, accurate source. Doesn't have anything to do with the music, it's about the narrative. To the vast majority of liberals, they just suck. And this applies as well, and not only to the Dixie Chicks. How many conservatives do you know, aside from maybe the prancing teenagers who play dress-up, you know, trying to resemble maybe a backwoods thug. How many good old boys like rap music? Has less to do with the music than supporting the internal narrative. Walter Lippman calls this the pseudo-environment. The internal imagined order of things. How you perceive the world internally in your mind. A fictitious concoction of your own creation. Our own creation. Everybody does this it's a trait you have to do it because you cannot see the world beyond the tip of your own nose your own sphere of experience you have to rely upon people to explain it for you that comes down to a choice who do you believe what do you believe Then you patch these little pieces together into a quilt representing the entire world. A pseudo-environment, an internal narrative, an imagined order, as uh, Harari said. These other points of view and competing Bible stories, other people's (laughs) pseudo-environments, can be a threat to that fictional certainty. And a reminder, deep down inside, way down beyond where the rationalizing elephant resides, that the rider, thanks to flawed human reason and remedial perception, it is remedial, sorry, it is. It's limited to what you can see and experience personally, firsthand, organically. And thanks to all that, the rider really doesn't know a goddamn thing about anything beyond the tips of those noses. And deep down inside, I think we know it. We know we don't know anything about the how the entire world, how the world is actually constructed beyond what we can lay our own personal eyes on. We have to trust people if we presume to try to understand anything beyond what we see. When it's challenged, when somebody else comes out with something different than ours, it makes our place in the world completely, totally, and terrifyingly Uncertain. Cognitive dissonance, perhaps. I found a great quote from Mr. Lippman while I was lying in bed reading the other night. The fiction is taken for truth because the fiction is badly needed. Jacques Loul could have written that. Stay tuned to this podcast. There's going to be a lot more on that coming, and I will be laying this out probably in the next episode or two, laying this out in great detail. Edward Bernays down the same line. This is a common theme running from 1922 to the modern day. Everybody that I have read that has any sort of insight into this sort of psychology and why we're at where we're at, why we believe propaganda, why we delude ourselves, it all sounds the same. Internal narratives, a lack of perception, a lack of an ability to perceive the world clearly. A lack of a willingness, I would say, to perceive the world clearly because we cannot cut through our own ego and we lack the ability to personally, firsthand, interact with the world we're trying to understand. That leaves us open for exploitation. People selling agenda, people wanting to control your perceptions, wanting to distort your perceptions for their own gain. Now, you would think people would just check the fuck out, but you can't, can you? In a democracy? What about the enlightened citizenry? Hmm. More coming. Now, this stuff that I'm talking about here was driven home last week. Me personally, my own experience, and it was driven home by an earlier version of myself. (laughs) That's always fun. Right? Had my annual 29th birthday last week. Happy birthday to me. Yeah, whatever. Anyway, I was feeling nostalgic. Dug out my old non-travel stream of consciousness journals uh, from the hitchhiking days. uh, 2008, 2009. 10, 11 years ago. I was hoping to kind of reconcile and remember. Remember and reconcile. In that order. Where I was 10 years ago with where I am now. At this point in my life. I wanted to see the difference, and I wanted to kind of, you know, I guess, track the progress. (laughs) Oh, boy. Uh, I have this piece that I put together. I'm waiting to figure out a good place to use it, but it's about shoulds. It's about the Lenny Bruce thing. Truth is what is. What should be is a fantasy, a terrible, terrible lie. Somebody gave the people long ago, and I, my writing was littered, polluted with should. People should this, and I kid people should that. Blah blah blah. I thought it was idealism, maybe it was. I don't know. I sure as hell interpreted that way. <laughs> I'm not so sure anymore. Let's just put it that way. And this was at the point where I was in the height, at the height of my spiritual religiosity, and reading it. It was walking up to the border, the boundary of my own little fanaticism. The certainty, the oozing certainty coming out of those pages was a little disturbing. It really was. Also, what's disturbing to me today was also the sense of purpose that I had in those pages. I felt like I was doing something with my life and it was going somewhere Everything had a reason. I know you know what I mean. I miss that. And this was um, this took me right up to the cusp of this Don Quixote thing that I've mentioned before in other podcasts. And this is sort of the the uh, uh, this is the seed that started to sprout that killed that religion and sent me into the abyss that I was talking about earlier. I know what this is like. I know what it's like to lose both your religion and your ideological religion. It leaves you without a compass. It leaves you without a support group, naked and afraid and confused and wondering if you're fucking nuts because there's nobody there to lean on and to reinforce the scripture, doctrine, whatever else. Being the solitary man without a congregation is hard work. It's difficult because you have to look in the mirror. You have got to rely upon the reflection in the mirror. And you have to be your own censor, your own critic. You, You have to be your own fact checker of your own stuff. It's incredibly difficult to do. It's so much easier to just latch on to somebody else's shit. That's why people do it. It's so easy to latch on to any kind of scripture or doctrine that explains everything for you, that doesn't require you to ask and answer your own questions. You have already had the questions asked, and the answers are provided for you. When you abandon that, and I wish I'd known this going in, I'm not so sure I would have done it. (laughs) When you abandon that, Oh, oh boy. Oh, boy. All these things, these religions, these questions, these answers, all of this stuff is the internal narrative. It is the pseudo-environment. It is the concoction, the delusion. These are the shadows on the wall inside of the cave. Well, if you think that the shadow's a buffalo, and nobody tells you it's not a buffalo, I guess it's a buffalo, huh? That is the pseudo-environment. That is the internal narrative. That is the imagined order. That is what we're talking about here. And these things can be, as I've said before, I'm sorry I'm being redundant. Get used to it. You're going to hear it again. That can be exploited. And that is the basic foundation for the need for propaganda. It's also the basic uh, foundation for the need for religion and ideology. I'm going to repeat this one more time. Be careful fucking with that. Be careful jacking with people. It's not only cruel if you succeed and they're not ready for it and they didn't want it. It's also dangerous to your safety. It can be. You know, in Plato's cave, he said, yeah, the guy coming back from the upper world trying to save the people that don't want to be saved will be killed, could be killed, he said. The story of Socrates is the same thing. He was showing people they didn't know what they thought they knew. They killed him for that. They found a reason. You're corrupting the young. Here's your hemlock. Plato's Cave, the story of Socrates, pretty much the same thing. Know that going in. If you're going to tinker around in that field. Another thing that I figured out, I've been on Facebook 11 years this month. And reading these pages last week, I was again struck that the big effect of social media on me personally... Right, has been, in my opinion, of human beings as a collective, just as a general species, has plummeted into a pit. I believed in people back in 2009, 2008. I thought we were divine, divine by the existence of our own consciousness, that we were destined, that we were God. We personally, collectively, were God. Sound familiar? Sounds like some humanist uh, stuff doesn't it? I believed all that. I thought we were destined for great things that the evolution was coming and of course I, I was part of it. That has changed dramatically. I've talked about the tragic and utopian visions a number of times recently. i been talking about it again but that I have gone from the utopian vision of humanity to the tragic vision of humanity. That We are incredibly flawed unless we are ready to evolve or unless we are unless we engage in another phase of evolution, that the tragic vision is the one we are doomed to. I've spent the last 11 years watching unaccountable sapiens, watching that id strip itself down, de-domesticate itself, and then hop upon its pet elephant to rampage around the Matrix. Often, I admit this, guilty as fuck. Often with me doing the exact same thing and joining in. I've watched this, I've analyzed it, I've seen my own behavior, and this is all sort of combined to really deflate my opinion of the species to which I belong. Completely destroyed that old belief, that projected egocentric one that we're all God. Destined for the stars by virtue of our own divinity of God. Oh, good God. You know, I actually use the word proletariat in one of these pages. This is a good place to point out. If you're looking for a chunk of stuff, Sausage Party Hope, I guess you could use me. (laughs) That people can change. People can realize things. People can, I don't know, learn, evolve. People can change if they allow themselves to. I don't know, you know, maybe in 10 years I'll be somewhere else and I'll listen to this podcast and I'll be like, oh my God, I was so full of shit. Maybe. Actually, I hope I am. I don't ever want to stop learning, stop evolving, stop changing, stop integrating new ideas, new things into my life. I mean, I got to tell you, there are very few things in this world that bother me more than people who believe the same shit they did 15 years ago. These monolithic people who never question anything. They never integrate anything new into this abstract schema. They never change anything. They never change the blueprint. They never change the internal narrative. They never redraw the pseudo-environment in their head. It's always the same. They cling to it like it's a piece of gold, like it's a piece of toilet, like the last piece of toilet paper inside of a filthy porta john Is hold on to it. I can't change it. I can't change anything. I can't change my opinion, my viewpoint. I can't do it. I can't. I can't. I got to protect it. It's mine. You shouldn't change just for the sake of change, but Jesus Christ, I mean, have you learned nothing since you were 25? Has nothing penetrated that skull and altered your perception of anything? Or are you just seeing it and dismissing it or distorting it to fit your purposes. I don't understand it. I don't like it. People that I respect the most, not that that really means a whole hell of a lot, I know, but the people that I do respect the most are the ones who are open to that, the ones who have seen mistakes that perhaps they have made and are willing to just say, "Eh, all right, I was wrong, let's move on. Let's get it right this time. And then later on, maybe they alter it again. It goes back to Emerson. The foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of small minds. I know I screwed the quote up. A foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of a small mind. The soul has nothing to do. You are the same person you were yesterday, and you're going to be the same person you, you are today, tomorrow. Ooh, stimulating. <laughs> I don't get it. No. No, I don't get it. Sorry. So anyway, yeah, I was in this context the other night that I started to flip through uh, Lippman's public opinion. Told you in the open, started to kind of, just wanted to put myself to sleep, wound up in here for two hours writing some shit. And I'm going to get to that shit that I found and I wrote probably in the next episode. But before I do that, I'm going to tie some other stuff that's going on in uh, the current events world uh, to this pseudo-environment internal narrative thing. I want to make sure you're at least semi-familiar with Lippmann today, all right? Uh, He was Edward Bernays' intellectual hero. That's how it's written, uh, taken directly out of uh, Bernays' uh, book, Propaganda, in the introduction. That's exactly what he said. That's exactly how he characterized Lippmann to Bernays. Bernays was the guy, as we all know by now, who took the word propaganda and changed it, rebranded propaganda into public relations, all right? Anyway, Lippmann, Bernays, intellectual hero. Both of these two are essentially the founding fathers of what today is the uh, American propaganda industry. Call it public relations if you want. You can call it boutique news if you want. You call it whatever you want. It's the American propaganda industrial complex. It's the thing that is engaged in a tug-of-war for your mind. (sighs) Brought to you by Viagra. I shouldn't have started that book. I should have just left that alone, should have just kept going with Alul. But on the other hand, I'm glad I did because there's more material here that's going to just reinforce and uh, support everything that I've been talking about with Jacques Alul for the last month or two. But one thing I think that stuck out more than anything in that uh, initial introduction to public opinion, something else that I've noticed has drastically changed over the last 10 years Personally, in my own head, it's directly related to both my exposure to social media and the material that I've been uh, sort of farting out of this podcast, and it's direct democracy. The notion of direct democracy is asinine. People have known this for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years. That's why, you see, we're a republic. The founding fathers understood that the people couldn't be trusted to make their own decisions. I'm sorry. You can't. We, I'm putting myself in here too, and I'm going to get to this. I will get to this. I will drive this home. I will lay this forth. I will put this forth here in the courtroom of podcast opinion in the next few days. We are not qualified to decide a goddamn thing. Direct democracy is a horrible, horrible concept. Founders knew it. it. Doesn't take Socrates or Plato to see that leaving everything up to the whims of the mob, the filthy mob, the enlightened citizenry, come on, enlightened are we? It's like putting toddlers in charge of daily decisions at the daycare. Oops. Like mobs, by their very nature, are stupid. When you become part of a mob, when you become part of a group, when you engage in the zombie group mind, the collective organism comprised of these individuals who uh, separate from the mob, separate from the organization or the organism, when their individuals may be quite intelligent, but when they get together, the collective intelligence, the mob, it becomes a collective ignoramus. It's stupid collectivism is retardation. <laughs> it is. I'm going to lay this out for you, too. I haven't mentioned Laban in a long time, have I? The, the mob mentality, the group mind. Do you ever hear that in the context of, my goodness, this collective brilliance is astounding? No. Do you think that doesn't work? Like echo chambers, things like that? Now, Bernays was not convinced This is a long time ago. This is really before uh, mass media really, really dug its claws into the American body politic. And he understood back in the 20s, late 20s, that you did not have to be physically congregated into a physical chanting, pitchfork carrying mob to be part of a group, to be part of a mob. You could do that from the comfort of your own couch. He understood this in the 1920s. In 1929, I think it was. And there's evidence of this all over the place. That We join into a mob, into a mob mentality, into a group mind. Whenever we log on, log into our echo chambers, whenever we start farting our missives into Twitter, our politically faithful missives into Facebook, we become part of the same mob that was gathered and congregated in Nuremberg. The same kind of stupidity. Ignorance. No, LeBron's going to be part of this thesis too. Mobs by their very nature, by their very existence, are stupid. Short bus, stupid, impassioned, emotional, and exploitable. And the individual cells comprising these mobs, again, even if they can somehow be liberated, typically don't know their ass from a hole in the ground. That, my friends, founding fathers understood this. People all the way back to Greece understood this. The people cannot be trusted beyond voting and choosing the people who will make their decisions for them. Search your feelings, Luke. You know it to be true. Try to remember that the next time somebody starts bleeding to you about how we need all the decisions in the hands of the people. That is social suicide. The average tonzillophile is a genius. I understand that. But aside from you, even the best of quote-unquote the people are semi-educated, have rarely seen anything of consequence with their own organic eyes. And even more seldom have they gone through the trouble of processing much with their own actual minds. They choose instead to embrace the warm and comforting fellowship and intellectual lobotomy of group conformity. That's the vast majority of the enlightened citizenry, right? Look, the people are therefore entirely unfit to lead themselves beyond choosing who will make their decisions for them. I know that stings. I know that goes against the (laughs) American democratic. We're not a democracy. We're a republic for a reason, but it goes against the democratic principle. I understand that. Maybe it, quote-unquote, should be different. The truth is what is. What should be is a terrible, terrible lie. Someone gave the people the enlightened citizenry, long, long, long ago. This is self-evident. Have you watched the news in the last couple of days? I have a whole chunk here on the impeachment hearings and what's going on with Ukraine and Biden. Have you watched the competing narratives put forth by your for-profit media in the last day or two? And you're telling me that people are able to discern functional and pertinent facts and make good decisions based on those facts. Really? Again, I'll say it again show me your work. I must continue. <sighs> Choosing who will make their decisions for them. That is called republicanism, and that is what we live in. A republic. And to the republic for which it stands, it's not. And to the direct democracy in which we all choose. There's a reason for that. There's a reason that the country was crafted the way it was by people a lot smarter than we are. Direct democracy would be an asinine mistake and social suicide because the people are fully dependent upon twisted and spun distortions to formulate what amount to wholly, fully fictitious and imaginary worldviews they have to be. You can't see them for yourself. They are concoctions. Now, some of this is by choice. But, but it's not entirely our fault. Okay? We did not evolve to live in these mass societies, hundreds of millions of people bound together. We didn't evolve this way. Optimally, our communities, they peak at about 150. And not 150 million, 150 people. And then it starts to break down. We begin to twitch because real human perception is limited to line of sight. Psychologically, we're adapted to smaller social groups tribes. Tribalism is how we evolved. It's in our DNA. And functionally, that line of sight, that perspective typically ends with work, kids, and whatever neighborhood, street, road, community on or in which we live. That's it. That's all we can possibly comprehend with any accuracy beyond that. It's distortion. Mostly secondhand slop. And the enlightened citizenry, especially Alul's current events man. You heard me talk about this guy, the current events man. He's always up on everything. He's getting all of his information from, in his day, the newspaper. But today it's either Fox News or MSNBC or, God God forbid, CNN or Huffington Post. Oh, did you read the latest HuffPo article today? Oh, my God, Trump is so terrible. Or did you read The Blaze? Oh, my God, the Democrats are evil. Did you see what Hannity did last night? Oh, he's such a genius. You have to do that. You have to trust somebody if you want to be a participating member in a society this large. In a group of 150 people (laughs) living in your little wood shacks, you wouldn't have to do that. You would understand everything that pertained to the community because you would know everyone. You would be able to witness everything that happened. Do you know for sure? What the whistleblower's complaint read today? Or are you just taking the spin and the distorted perception put forth in the media, put forth by a, pro- a politician, put forth by a lawyer, politician more interested in power or seizing power than disseminating the truth to the enlightened citizenry? <laughs> <laughs> Glad I got that in there today. <laughs> The current events man is beholden, beholden to someone, whomever happens to be slinging the slop. And these pieces of news, these pieces of current events are always going to have an inherent bias to them because they come from someone with an agenda. Either to get clicks, to get views, it's got to be sensationalized. Someone with an ideological interest, you're never going to get a clear picture of any current event because you, yourself, didn't see it. You are dependent and beholden upon the distortions put forth by someone else. Therefore, you don't know anything. None of us do. None of us know a goddamn thing. And as time goes on and the profit margins get bigger and the stakes grow larger... The sensationalism, the sensationalized media, it gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. The agitation aspect of it gets more intense. People just move to their goddamn corners. They just root for their team. They fight for their team. A lot of people would say this is ultimately the inevitable destination of democracy because people cannot, cannot perceive the world for what it is therefore cannot make good decisions. About 100 years ago with the arrival of electric media and especially now 100 years later with the internet what was already an overwhelmed confusion has gotten only exponentially worse. The people like to believe they understand the world and their place in it. I know, I know, I know a lot of you really just want to drop some truth on me. I understand the world perfectly well. Shh. You don't. You can't. But you want to believe it. You want to believe you understand the world and your place in it, but that is literally impossible. It is impossible for you personally to understand it. You can't see it. You can understand your community, your street, your own lives, maybe the lives of your friends and neighbors. You don't understand Washington, D.C. You sure as hell don't understand the Ukraine or what goes on inside of Fox News, CNN, or MSNBC. You have no idea. So you're, you're left with a decision to make. Trust everything they say become cynical where you believe nothing anybody says. <laughs> or you just you, you bounce off the walls in a state of confusion. Not knowing what to believe. Considering the ugly reality of the situation, you don't know a goddamn thing. What's the most natural reaction? What's the most genuine and authentic reaction to this? Cynicism? Believing everything? Huh? Or is it the state of confusion where you're just bouncing off the walls like a ping-pong ball because you have no idea what to believe? Now, let's add data overload to this, where you've got data coming in, not only from the, the uh, TV news sources and the politicians, but you got your phone pinging you all the time, bringing you more shit for you to sift through that you can't even begin. You can't even begin to sort it out. There's too much of it. You can't do it. You're drowning in it. Does that bother you? That sting? That's the state of the world we're in, and that's why so many people I can't believe people believe all of this. Well, of course they do. They they don't have a choice. They can't sort through anything. And and living in a state of complete uncertainty where you know you know nothing is unacceptable. Nobody wants to do that. I've talked about that already. Yeah, state of enemy, confusion, naked and afraid, that kind of thing. It's much, much, much easier to just latch on to something. A religion. A religion. Jesus explains it all. Bernie explains it all. Oh my God, Donald Trump explains it all. Mitch McConnell saves the world. I can't believe people... Really? You really can't believe that people believe this stuff? You sure? It seems like a perfectly natural reaction to me. Because trying to sort through it and trying to keep a tight grip on your own intellectual autonomy. When everything, everything is bullshit. There's so much bullshit to sort through. How do you do that? It's almost a, an exercise in masochism, isn't it? Yeah, it is. No, so don't sit there and ask me, how do people believe this shit? They got to believe something. The alternative is bewilderment, utter bewilderment and not having a place, not having that internal dialogue, that pseudo environment where you have a solid place in your mind, in the world. It's the old Leonard Cohen, won't be nothing you can measure anymore. Aren't we there? I mean, if you take yourself out of the ideological camp, if you take yourself out of the ideological congregation, if you take yourself out of the uh, Holy Church of the Perpetual Victim or the (laughs) Holy Church of the Righteous Patriot, if you don't have that, if you don't have that system, that structure in place, how do you measure anything now? I spent today... Flipping back and forth between CNN and Fox News, watching the coverage both of the Ukraine thing with Trump and Biden. These are not night and day. This is Andromeda and the Milky Way. These are separate galaxies these people are living in. How are you supposed to sift through that? I tried today. I did. If you don't have an allegiance to one side or the other, you don't know what the fuck to think. You have no idea. The best thing I could come up with today, and it's not very good, but it's the best I could do personally, is that if I wanted to find out about Trump in the Ukraine, I watched CNN. And if I wanted to find out about the thing with Biden back when he was Veep and his kid was there working for that company in the Ukraine, I watched Fox News. And as soon as they started defending Trump, I turned them off. And as soon as CNN decided to call everything with uh, Joe Biden a conspiracy theory, I shut them off. And that's the best I could do. And the best I could come up with is that, hey, are these things mutually exclusive? If Trump was guilty, then Biden was innocent? Or can these both of these things actually, if you listen to the critical coverage, could they both actually be true? I don't know. I do not know at this point. I have a whole thing written that I was going to do on this. That's that's a part of it. I won't do it today. I'm I'm going to wait on that. But what are you supposed to do? If you're not attached to one ideology or another, what are you supposed to do? If you think you can sort through all of this, every piece of data coming through, you know, separate the good from the bad, the bullshit from the fact, You don't know what the facts are. You believe what you want to believe. You grab a hold of anything that will reinforce the narrative you've already created in your mind. Or you live in a state of perpetual confusion. An overwhelming confusion brought about by data overload. And spin overload. Propaganda overload. This is the golden age of propaganda thanks to our technology. There's a reason that I chose this theme. It has never been able to be delivered like this in this way. This intensely. Again, without ideological or religious scripture to make dubiously, dubiously mythological sense of it all, the average man is a drunk Helen Keller playing in informational and disinformational traffic. Good luck not getting run over. Helen I used a quote earlier, the fiction is taken for truth because the fiction is badly needed. Walter Lippman from Public Opinion. Now, if you think the New York Times or HuffPo is going to save you, citizen. Here's another quote from Public Opinion. This one might sound familiar. Keep in mind, 1922. It is argued that the problem of the press is confused because the critics and the apologists expect the press to realize this fiction expected to make up for all that was not foreseen in the theory of democracy and that the readers expect this miracle to be performed at no cost or trouble to themselves the newspapers mass media at the time are regarded by democrats as a panacea for their own defects Whereas analysis of the nature of news and of the economic basis of journalism seems to show that the newspapers, mass media, necessarily and inevitably reflect and therefore, in greater or lesser measure, intensify the defective organization of public opinion. The press isn't the answer. The press reflects the problem. The press intensifies the problem because of the economic reality of journalism. If you want more on that, perhaps you're new to the podcast. (laughs) I have something for you. It's called the Media 101 Podcast. Have fun. I think you'll like it. Lots of people do. It's my second most downloaded podcast ever for a reason. Go check it the fuck out if you haven't listened to it. Well, that was 1922. Look, I, I've said this before. The Great 21st Century War. It's not going to be a, a literal battle of world wars. Not the Great Battle. We'll have those two, I'm sure, at this, at this rate. No, but the Great Battle of the 21st Century is the battle for the sovereignty of your own mind. Desperately clinging to the ability to be a solitary individual, an independent mind maintaining even a tenuous connection to external reality rather than being lost in the information data matrix. Good luck with that, huh? And that's my obsession at this point. I mean, there are worse things, I guess, to be obsessed over. (laughs) Far more hopeful ones at that. I confess, I haven't read the whole thing. I've only read the introduction to this book, and I'm almost afraid uh, to dig much further into it. But my take so far anyway, is that uh, Walter Lippmann basically diagnosed idealistic democracy as being terminal back in the 1920s, almost 100 years ago. Lots of other people have said the same thing. and In his case, it's mostly due to our inability uh, to perceive reality and the dependence on what he called our personalized pseudo-environments, personal reality narratives. The imagined order of our minds. You can insert propaganda's agenda, exploitations, and justifications. You can also insert Heights' rationalizations right here. When mass media first came about, and they figured out that they could use it to create this mob, to create this group mind, and also how to exploit that back door in the firewall with a Trojan horse, a mass media Trojan horse. Oof. It's hard to disagree with him. This is also the guy who wrote that the society that lacks the mechanism to tell truth from falsehood does not remain free. It doesn't matter why the society lacks it. It doesn't matter if it's tyranny. It doesn't matter if it's censorship. It doesn't matter if it's a lobotomized citizenry. It doesn't matter. Arguing about that is masturbation. It all leads to the same place. I'll be watching CNN and Fox again tomorrow. I invite you to do the same thing. Let's compare notes, shall we? And you tell me that between those two networks, try to do this in a detached way. God, I shouldn't have even suggested this because most people can't do it in that way. But if you can detach, if you're one of the few people who can legitimately detach from political loyalty or hatred, and you can watch those two networks and how different they are, how they are existing in different factual realities. And then you can come away with that, asking yourself, how can they do this on the same cable company, just a channel apart from each other? How can these two things exist? And then ask yourself, how does this nation have the mechanism to tell truth from falsehood? Help me out. Por favor. I'd love to hear that. We are choking, choking both in propaganda and disconnected data. We can't sort through it. We cannot sift through it. We are at the mercy, the mercy of the digital distortion. And it's only natural. It's only a natural human reaction when you're confused to run to what will give you answers. We're not different from children in that way. And I don't think I've even invoked the agitation aspect of this yet, have I? I don't know. I don't remember. I'll tell you this, though. It's not tinfoilism to point out that these tactics, all of these tactics can be used from the outside simply to provoke internal destabilization. If you have a population that is not tethered to truth, doesn't have the ability to tell truth from falsehood, you can flood them with any sort of disinformation you want and they'll gobble it up as long as they agree with it. Mmm, that's tasty. And you don't even have to do this with any intention of actually succeeding. Destabilization can be the goal. Look, we used this shit on people in Guatemala back in the 1950s before the United Fruit coup, which, by the way, Edward Bernays was involved in. Didn't know that, did you? I didn't even know that before recently. I'm excited to learn more. (laughs) Yeah, we used it in Guatemala against the Arbenz government. uh, Calvin Coolidge, personally. Used the then new wireless radio technology to personally, personally agitate the German population against their government in World War I. Abandon the Kaiser. I think it was. Shit Man, we've used this stuff repeatedly. How? How can you possibly think it can't be used against us, especially with these shiny new technological tools everybody has in their pocket? It's Goebbels' wet dream to be able to ping the propagandee at will. On that note, the agitation note, the destabilization note, the interference note, I ask once again, I've never gotten a good answer to this, where the fuck is Jill Stein Ben? <gasps> oh, jilly I got more on Walter Lippman. I've got more coming up on the um, dueling scandals in Washington DC and the forthcoming shit show that's sure to be these um, impeachment hearings we have the script written for 2020 we're a few months away but we know what this election season is gonna look like already it's political theater maybe some idealism. Hard for me to argue with impeaching the guy at this point. I think I've said that a hundred times, but ultimately it's a dead end and ultimately it's a political commercial. Got more on Lippmann coming up as well. Getting closer to getting back to the propaganda material too, so I hopefully you're uh, looking forward to that. Public opinion by Lippman, worth a read. Definitely worth a read. Nicholas Carr's The Shallows, propaganda by Bernays too. EscapingtheCave.com, ChristopherMedia.net for all your podcast needs. Thank you ever so much for clicking in getting back into a routine hope you're enjoying it and um, we'll talk to you next time so long